random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, all the way up in the Great White North, we are joined with the Wendigo. No, we are joined with Jim Zub. Jim, good evening. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for having me. I like the Wendigo. Good deep cut. Thank that you. was that was, and also welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm surprised it's, he didn't uh, say. It is always a pleasure. Well, that's good because I'm surprised Peter didn't say returning guest. I want to say he's a three timer. Well, I, that's I, still oh a return. Goodness. Well, obviously. Is this the hat trick, the triple play? I guess if you do the hockey thing, it's very possible. <laughs> or the baseball, yeah. So first off, congratulations on the Thunderbolts title over at the House of Ideas, Marvel Comics. Thank you. Uh, it feels good to have lightning strike twice. I am uh, uh, really uh, proud to be uh, doing the book again, and the response from readers has been really, really fun. And and they haven't even seen the big, the big turns yet. We've got a few more uh, uh, twists and turns to, to throw people before it's over. I cannot wait for people to to read it. I mean, you brought Hawk Guy back into his legendary cowl. <laughs> yes, that was a selfish thing for both Sean Isaac and I. We both love Hawkeye's classic costume. That's also why Hawkeye shows up briefly in that costume in, in No Surrender, because uh, Sean and I were working on that as well, and it was a good excuse for us to pull out the old classic gear wherever we can. But we want to also, of course, mention the new Red Sonja that's out there, Unbreakable yes. Red Sonja. And I yeah. kind of, you know, yeah, that um, has been a, a total blast to work on. Kind of wonder though, you know, it's been said with other creators, perhaps in other episodes that we've done. One thing being the property, meaning Red Sonia, going from from what I know, beginning with Marvel, and then from there, I don't know where and why and the variables that influence how, how exactly, and why and who and yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> Cats in the cradle. Um, yeah, so if you want to do a little tracing of, of that part of it, maybe Jim to start with, and how did Unbreakable become? How in... I got involved with Red Sonia stuff, or Red Sonia in general? Yes, to the to the <laughs> all the above. <laughs> so um, I'm I'm doing a bunch of Robert E. Howard stuff as of late, so I actually know more about this than I would have previously. Red Sonia is a really interesting character because although you know conan the barbarian was created by robert e howard you know the original sword and sorcery sorcery author um and he's got this amazing kind of creation that we call the hyborian age this world of you know sword and sorcery high adventure um red sonya as we know her in the comics was not a robert e howard character that's not to say that there were not characters it gets complicated because robert e howard did make a character called red sonya name is Red Sonia of Rogatino, and, but it's spelled with a Y, not with a J mm-hmm. on Sonia. And uh, the story that, that he told with her is very, very different, and she's a very different character, and she's not a sword and sorcery character. Now, there's another character that Robert E. Howard made called Dark Agnes, and she is also not in the Hyborian Age, but she has this kind of, uh, she's called the Swordswoman in this original story, and she has this attitude 
that we would definitely attribute to Red Sonia and this idea of that she will not, you know, bow to anyone unless they can defeat her in combat and all this kind of stuff. Now, Roy Thomas, when he was writing the classic Conan comic series, he uh, would constantly crib material from other Robert E. Howard stories and kind of mix them together into the Hyborian Age. And so he liked the name Red Sonia, and he liked the attitude of Dark Agnes, and he kind of fused them together into a new character called Red Sonia with a J that they introduced in, I believe, Conan the Barbarian number 24. And the character really struck a chord with readers, and uh, became, uh, you know, a cool kind of an ally and a foil, depending on the stories that they were in. And so she is sort of an original creation of the Marvel Comics era that would eventually, I believe because they were going to be making the live-action movie, uh, they needed to kind of separate the rights and create their own company for it. I could be wrong on that, but I think that's when that separation took place. And then Red Sonja became her own kind of property. Now, the way the license works, she is still part of the Hyborian Age, and she's able to run around that fantasy world and interact with those elements of it, but she and Conan are separate kind of licenses. <clears throat> My first experience working on Red Sonja was in 2015. I had a few uh, you know, writing credits under my belt. I had done um, uh, uh, a fantasy creator-owned series called Skull Kickers that had been well-regarded and was known for sort of my sword and sorcery stuff a little bit. I did uh, the Pathfinder series at Dynamite, which is an adaptation of a tabletop fantasy role-playing game that I was a big fan of. And so I was kind of known in that space. Uh, I know, I've known Gail Simone for years, and she had the opportunity to work with Dark Horse and Dynamite and bring the two characters together into a crossover. And she asked me if I would co-write it with her because I knew the Conan stuff quite well. And I thought that would be my only chance to write both Conan and Red Sonja. But instead, it's turned into, over the years, I've been able to write both of them, you know, several times since then. And this is my chance to really kind of do, like Unbreakable Red Sonja is sort of my chance to go, okay, this is what I think is a really cool, iconic Red Sonja story. We're doing these five issues, and we're going to delve deep and really kind of uh, it's called unbreakable because we're going to try and break her. Like we're we're putting her through the paces. We're trying to make this a really epic adventure of what she's got to go up against a new villain that we've put together specifically for the series that's going to test her limits and you know prove why she is a legend. And uh, it's been a real fun ride. I'm working with this artist Giovanni Valletta, and he is doing wonderful work on the series. And uh, my editor Matt Idelson. And we're just plugging away, trying to do, you know, sword and sorcery in this epic fashion and, uh, and, and make a cool statement about who this character is as we head towards her, would you believe, 50th anniversary in 2023. 20, okay, I was thinking it's probably in the early there-ish 1970s that she first yeah. uh, came about. And I do recall, yes, that issue of Conan, like you said, first appearance type thing. And I remember her also being on the cover, I guess it was Marvel Feature. Which, which yeah, would vary well, up. she would eventually get her own solo series at Marvel. Um, you know, Roy Thomas did a lot of seminal stories with her. Uh, uh, Frank Thorne did a lot of seminal work with her as well. You know, quite a few writers over the years have done really cool runs uh, in the original, in Savage Sword of Conan, and all kinds of different places. And then eventually, you know, Dynamite um, got the license to do the comics, 
and has sort of carried that forward ever since. I'm not even sure how many years they've had the the license for, but it's been quite a while. And if I may, I think it's just, it's the sign of the kind of person that's working on the character, how devoted they are. The fact you know the character's first appearance right off the bat, that shows the character's in good hands. Oh, thanks. You know, for me, I love the research. Like, it's a big part of what makes these existing properties so interesting like you know creating original stories is is very valuable to me and i love creating things like skull kickers and wayward and glitter bomb and stone star and other creator-owned series i've done but if i'm going to be tasked with working on an established character part of my job and i feel this should be true of any writer is to get a good handle on who this character is you know my opinions and and what i think is most important about the character is going to be different from someone else and that's why I'm writing this story and someone else writes a different one, but that doesn't mean that I ignore what has come before. You know what I mean? I should be able to look at it, be able to discern what the through lines are and where I feel like the narrative strengths are or questions that may not have been answered or, you know, all kinds of different things you can do. The same thing holds true with shared superhero universes. You know, it's not just about me exerting my will upon these characters. It's about does this feel like it's an ongoing narrative of Clint Barton, if we're talking about the Thunderbolts or or any other character, you know, that I've written over the years, like, who are these characters? What have they been through? That's part of the continuity. You know, that's part of what makes, there's a reason why these characters have fans, and it's because they've been following along with the stories. If you're not acknowledging that, and you're not treating that as part of the journey, then that's a disservice, you know, to readers, and it's a disservice to the publisher, I feel, you know. In, in the grand scheme of things. I think you answered the question that I was going to ask is why Unbreakable, and you pretty much said that before. Um, but I thought... Yeah, put her through the paces. Put, make, you know, make her kind of have to prove uh, what, what her worth is and survivability. That's one of the things that's so cool about fantasy stories and the Hyborian Age in particular. When you take characters away from the Hyborian Age and, and a lot of fantasy worlds, you can't fall back on technology. You can't fall back on civilization to save you. Everywhere you go, you know, there are threats. There are threats in the cities. There are threats in the forests and the jungles and the mountains. Like, everywhere is uh, an act of survival. And the people that are strong and become leaders and become legends, <clears throat> it's because they've proven themselves time and time again, you know, uh, against the, the most nasty of odds. And that's stuff I really like about the fantasy genres. It's like, I'm not worrying about how to get rid of a cell phone signal or why they don't have any gas in the car or why they can't just call up the Avengers. You know, it's you're on your own. You're out in the great big wide world, sword in your hand and, you know, uh, uh, steel in your gut. Like, let's go. I like, though, that, uh, you know, you say it's called Unbreakable Red Sonya again because it's going to reflect back on what the story is about, essentially. And... I realized, too, in, in hearing you and thinking about it in my head, is that you don't necessarily have to, when you come out with a new run series of the same character, don't have to give it a different title. It could still be, in some respects at least, the same. It could still have Consistent. been called Red, Red Sonia. The consistency. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, <clears throat> and for me, like when I was doing Conan the Barbarian, uh, Marvel had, had redone their numbering because they, you know, it had been so many years since they'd had the license. And so they'll include legacy numbering on the books. You know, um, the first of Jason Aaron's, you know, run was issue one, but it was also legacy number 276, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so for me, the legacy number is always what matters most. I, I kind of wish Dynamite would do that as well. If I knew how many total Red Sonja issues there had been and that I'm part of that broader legacy, that's what I feel like is really important. I don't just want to kind of, yes, it's called Unbreakable, but for me, it's part of a longer chain of cool sword and sorcery adventure. Oh, yeah, I'm right there with you. In fact, I, my thing with, with Dynamite, unfortunately, is trying to, uh, just for my own documentation, put down, well, when was this issue of Elvira right. in Horrorland or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. I know the month that I bought it, so I'm putting that down, you know. Right, right. And that's the thing is that I get it from a, you know, book trade point of view. You go into a bookstore and it's kind of intimidating to see walls and walls of, of stories from characters. So if you can separate them into their individual components, you know, you can sell that uh, on a longer tail to a book chain. So cool, it's called Unbreakable Red Sonia. Someone can pick up that book if they like my other fantasy writing or if the cover art grabs their eye or whatever may have you, and you'll get a complete story from beginning to middle to end, and, and it's going to be good stuff. And even if we're referencing previous bits of continuity, it's never in a way that you will feel unsatisfied. Like, we're always going to fill in the gaps for you. You know, when I was a kid, I would pick up a random issue of a superhero comic, and you would always know who the main characters were, what they were after, even if they were referencing old stories and it had the little asterisks and it tells you what issue number it's in, mm. I would understand the context of it. These characters don't like each other because they met before. These characters are in love and they fell out of love or whatever. You know, All that stuff shouldn't be that difficult to impart to a new reader if you do it right. Now, in regards to the storytelling technique of comics, when what are your like key ways of helping establish things for a newcomer reader, and as a matter of fact, by the way, go to Patreon.com and check out Jim Zub's account on there where he okay. offers comic tips and also hundreds upon hundreds of scripts. So for the cup yeah, of coffee. Yeah, I, I started doing advice, uh, and there's about 40 different articles for free on my website talking about writing process, and I've done multiple videos for free on YouTube where you can watch me break down a story. I think it depends on, on the story you're trying to tell. Like, there's no one simple formula way to go, okay, here's the best way to catch a reader up to speed. You know, sometimes you can do it through captions and kind of third-person narrative, and that's more of the stuff that you're going to do in something like a, a Conan or a Red Sonja, that kind of literary voice that we tend to use that feels a little old school, but also allows you to, to impart I think a bunch of sensory information that you may not be getting just from the artwork. And then other times it's, you know, what we classically call exposition, which can be negative if it's done really poorly or sloppily, but also if you do it smartly, it allows you to create kind of different um, interactions between characters. It's one of the reasons why I like writing team books is because uh, you have different characters in different combinations and how they interrelate with each other and how those relationships change. I find a really, I find that to be a really cool puzzle to kind of parse out as I'm working away through a story. So it's not just about uh, characters telling each other things they already know. It's about, okay, this new character comes into a situation. We have to catch them up to speed within the story, which just so happens to catch the reader up at the same time. You know, that's a pretty classic device, right? Um, something as simple as as new person joins the team or a new person enters the situation or person makes a social faux pas and then someone corrects them by catching them up to speed on the information. Now suddenly the reader is more aware. You know, that's the kind of stuff that you can do to make it feel relatively seamless while still imparting a bunch of knowledge. Jim, is there any particular trait or characteristic about 
read, Sonia, that in all the research you've done and knowing and understanding the character that, you know, you came across and said, oh, wow, I didn't know this about Red Sonia, or, you know, or maybe it's just a simple, no, I know, you know, nothing surprised me, or no, Eddie, I'm not answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the stuff, I, yeah, I can't tip my hand completely because it actually pays into one of the reveals in the story. So I don't want to say all of it, but I did go pretty deep dive. You know, the character's gone through a multiple, like, eras. Um, you know, Gail Simone's is probably the most iconic one of the recent uh, past. But, you know, the original Roy Thomas stuff was built off of very much that pulp kind of model. And, and the character didn't have the kind of defined stories that Conan did, which gave, I think, writers a little bit more flexibility in some ways to sort of say, okay, here's who she is through the ages. We get to define that in the comic rather than it being like connecting points uh, you know, the the literary stories of Conan and saying, well, is it before God in the Bowl or after God in the Bowl? Is it before, you know, Tower and the Elephant or after? Like, those stories from the source material, those are unchangeable because they're the, the absolute canon of the literary. With Red Sonia's, there's a lot more flexibility to sort of say, well, this has not been clearly defined. These time periods are not as as cleanly set. We can kind of make it whatever we want and let's sort of go with it. And some writers, I think, have embraced that. And I think some other writers have felt a little bit, um, you can feel them being a little bit tepid because they don't have the North Star to sort of point to. So, so really, then the it's, it's uh, Red Sonia, you know, she is not lactose intolerant. Okay. Oh, right, idiot. right. Yeah, there's no like, abs- well, her origin has gone through multiple kind of revisions over the years. And so one of, one of my thought processes as I was going through and making decisions or writing up my story idea was to sort of ratify a few of those and kind of go, can these coexist? Is there a way to kind of thread the needle through several of these that none of them feel like they're um, wrong? Do you know what I mean? While, yeah. while addressing some of the incongruities. I thought that would be a bit of a neat challenge, if you will. And they're also reminding me, too, there was a series of novels on red now this is probably separate stuff than right anything else and it's so so it's disconnected from anything else which is fine self-contained i think there were about six five or six books in the late 70s early 80s of novels yeah i have not read those so i'm i'm out of my depth on on commenting on those in specific well i can't because i did read them but it was so long ago i need to go back <laughs> right yeah. you know it's fascinating too i know with with conan and working with um funcom and heroic signatures they're the license holders now for the conan They've basically said, look, the, the Robert E. Howard stories are canon. Everything else is flexible. You know what I mean? Like all the other stuff, because there's hundreds of stories, <clears throat> you know, in the same way that there's hundreds and hundreds of Batman stories or Spider-Man. And you can say that they all happen to some degree or another. But, you know, the more you try and encompass them all at any one time, the more there's a bit of a ridiculous quality to it. You know, you're like... I shouldn't be counting the number of Christmases in Amazing Spider-Man because it's going to make you crazy or, you know, who the president is or whether they're wearing bell bottoms or leg warmers or whatever, depending on the decade and depending on the era, we all kind of hand wave certain amounts of those things. You know what I mean? We say, oh, Spider-Man has fought Dr. Octopus a multitude of times. And, and there was one time where he almost married Aunt May and that happened. We don't need to put (laughs) day and date on the calendar. You know what I mean? Like that's more important as a broad storytelling structure than to sit there and say, okay, 
<clears throat> Red Sonia was here on this calendar day, and therefore she couldn't have traveled over here on that calendar day. You're like, man, is that really, mm-hmm. is that really super important, or is it more about the broad base? She has traveled to many places, and she has had many experiences at this juncture. You know what I mean? I couldn't even think of trying to count Christmases with Spider-Man. I went right away to Luke Cage. Right? How many All sweet Christmases could there have been? Or whatever. You know, and sometimes there's these fascinating kind of incongruities that we all kind of accept. Like when Bendis did the thing about bringing the old X-Men, you know, to the present, and they are all dressed like it's the 60s mm. and acting like they're the 60s versions of the characters because that is the version in the past. I mean, it's insane, right? Like if the characters are in their 20s or 30s, they should all be from the late 90s or whatever, but like just don't think about it too hard because your brain will break. You it's, know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's literally the line from Mystery Science Theater, but, you know, uh, fixed up a little. Just pretend or just repeat to yourself it's just a show. I should really just relax because that's what right. it is. Right, and it's not to say that it, like continuity matters, as in these stories matter, they were worth reading, and they have value, but don't get so granular that you're, that you're shattering illusion of what it is to be a comic reader over decades you know what i mean like if you're sitting there and you're saying wait a minute so reed richards graduated university after 9-11 like what like none of this makes you're like no no slow down calm down it's okay the space race still happened it's going to be all right am i the only one that just realized jim just sort of made a music reference when he said shatter illusions and my brain went shatter illusions of love and it's fleetwood mac gold dust woman oh eddie, eddie. <laughs> bam we're we're all getting lyrical here. It's all right. And it's funny, though, with continuity and, you know, what's canon and what's not. Like, myself, I'm sure. going through the uh, the Timothy Zahn Star Wars books now, and I'm like, you know what? None of this technically matters, but it's a well-written story, so I'm going to enjoy it for but what, what it is. But what's fascinating now is watching things like the, both The Mandalorian and other Star Wars bits where they're starting to bring some of it back in. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Star Wars comics are starting to bring back in some of those characters from the Zahn novels or... If the stuff's good, it's still worth utilizing. Do you know what I mean? In the same way that the MCU has got to try and parse and filter decades worth of stories and go, okay, we're going to take a little bit of Civil War and we're going to take a little bit of, you know, the the Kree Scroll War and we're going to take a little bit of, you know, whatever past Kang the Conqueror stories and all this stuff and you're trying to fuse it together to create an an ongoing narrative, right? Now, since you work for Walter Disney and Michael Mouse, um, I I have a request in regards to Star Wars. If you can bring it back into continuity, that would be amazing. Bring back Mara Jade and uh, Dash Rendar. Oh, man. (laughs) See, I like that stuff, too. That's obviously – I haven't done that much Star Wars stuff. I've only – I haven't done any Star Wars comics, believe it or not. Um, I've only – I wrote one short story for one of the Star Wars anthologies, a prose anthology of all things, which I'm not known for. Um, and that was a really fun exercise, and I think I got invited on board. One of the others told me literally because I didn't have any other Star Wars credits, and that was kind of the whole point of the anthology was to bring in people who hadn't done a lot of stuff before to sort of, you know, uh, try something out and, and bring a bit of a different perspective. And so um, I don't have any any uh, uh, hand on the wheel. I don't have any hand on the wheel of Marvel superheroes. You know, I do what I can, but... Um, Definitely don't have anything at Star Wars I can do on that front. Well, I will give Mr. Greg Star Wars over at uh, Disney a uh, a firm phone call. I don't know why it's a firm (laughs) phone call, but maybe Star? That too. Okay. Robin. 
Oh, not, oh wrong Stern, sorry. <laughs> what? You know what's fascinating, too, though, is when you're talking to editors and you're talking to the actual decision makers and you're discovering what their, you know, particular personal biases or, or the things that they want to see and then whether or not they can thread them through. And every so often it can be kind of fun to see if you can, you know, be a part of that kind of process or you're like, who, who hasn't gotten, you know, their, their due in a long time or what character hasn't had a series or hasn't appeared in some time. And every so often there's weird synchronicities where a bunch of writers will want to use a particular villain out of nowhere. And I think the editors want to pull out their hair. They're like, no one cared about this character six months ago. Now four of you want to do something with them. You know what I mean? This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two... You haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And it's funny because we've had uh, Steve Orlando on a number of times and like he did the Darkhold comic and then literally one year later... You end up seeing, you know, Darkhold mentioned in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and this and that. And it's like, you know, we asked him, like, was there like an edict brought down saying, hey, we think you should do Darkhold stuff? He's like, no, I literally just was like, yeah, I'll do a Darkhold comic. Yeah, sometimes it's a zeitgeist or sometimes, you know, it's a broader thing of, oh, look, there's only so many different magical what gigas in the, in the Marvel Universe, right? And so if magic is where the Marvel Universe is starting to tilt its attention and you happen to be excited about that stuff, you're inevitably going to trip along the same kind of pathways. The Darkhold's going to show up or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like these, these elements of it, the man thing or, you know, the, the supernatural side of the Marvel Universe is something I love. So if I say four different things I like, then you're going to be like, whoa, when they announce that movie, you're going to be like, whoa, Jim must have really been... You know, he, I bet you he's talking to Kevin Foggy. You're like, or, or we're just all talking about the same kind of primordial material, right? Like, you know, they announced my Thunderbolts book, and the lineup is completely different from the upcoming Thunderbolts movie. But there's also the through line that the Thunderbolts have always been about redemption. They've always been about characters, you know, kind of going through traumatic and difficult times in their lives and trying to figure out where they want to go from there. I feel like. Thunderbolts is this crossroad book for characters and identity, you know? Now, in regards to other characters and, you know, properties that you've worked on, you've done a lot of stuff with everyone's favorite animated series, Richard and Mortimer, and <laughs> being able to see yeah. the Rick and Morty uh, Cthulhu book that's happening. Yes. Wow. That is that is so fun. Like, so I've done two of these Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons miniseries. The first one co-written with uh, Pat Rothfuss, both those series drawn by the amazing Troy Little, and um, they've been such a joy to work on, so much fun, getting to frame kind of my favorite thing, Dungeons & Dragons, through the lens of the Rick and Morty kind of ridiculousness and insanity, and and Rick Sanchez's particular nihilistic approach, you know, uh, to the universe. 
Um, and there was talk of potentially doing a third miniseries, but I wanted to sort of go in an unexpected direction and not new, do what everyone expected of us. And so um, I was sort of thinking about, well, what other things could we do with Rick and Morty? And, you know, both because in the opening credits, there's this really weird moment of a, like, Cthulian monster chasing Rick and Morty in summer. And also because I thought, you know, what is the ultimate kind of nihilistic thing? And it's like, oh, the, you know, the Cthulhu mythos, the universe's unfeeling, alien, monstrous kind of concept. What if we put that up against Rick Sanchez? Like his isn't in some ways true nihilism. It's more narcissistic than anything else. Let's, let's put these things against each other, this ultimate kind of confrontation. And that was where that kind of idea came from. <clears throat> I sent an email to my editor at the time at ONI, Sarah Gatos, and I literally, I think the title of the email was, what do you think about, and then the body of the email was, Rick and Morty versus Cthulhu, and she just said, call me, and we chatted for like 10 or 15 minutes, and then it was, let's put a pitch together, you know, so, um, and I said I couldn't do it without Troy, because Troy's a phenomenal, phenomenal artist and collaborator, and his, um, he's just one of the best cartoonists in the business, you know, there's a reason why he's been Eisner nominated multiple times, he's just so incredible, and he's such a great collaborator. He understands how to bring across that kind of animated feel to his pages and his designs. And we get along really, really well. And I just, you know, we got him hyped up. And he's really cut loose on this Rick and Morty Cthulhu series. And it is one of the weirdest and most amazing uh, projects I've had the chance to work on. I got to dig back deep into the Lovecraft stuff. And it is just as twisted and messed up as I remember, and even more so. And, you know, one of the things that Sarah said to me really early on, she said, you know, how are we going to deal with the, the racism that's in those original Lovecraft stories? And I said, oh, we're just going to, we're, we're going to tackle it head on. Like Rick Sanchez knows the Lovecraft material, and he knows that Lovecraft is a big xenophobic piece of crap. And so let's, Literally, one of the things Rick wants to do is destroy, you know, the Lovecraft uh, mythos and the Cthulian mythos because Howard Philip Lovecraft was, you know, a, a really nasty guy in some ways and, and had these really awful, outdated and, and you know, small-minded views about people and about races. And that's kind of the whole point of the thing is like Rick Sanchez doesn't love Lovecraft. He hates it. He wants to destroy it. He doesn't want it to taint and, and ruin his universe. And so that's where a lot of the confrontation kind of comes from. And we get to do what Rick and Morty does best, which is deconstruct and destroy and sarcastically throw barbs at things that deserve it. It's funny with Rick and Morty, too, because in the comic properties especially, they go all out with, like, the most random crossovers, the most random references, you know, like uh, parody comics. Like, friend of the yep. show, Amy Chu, you know, she did a Dune crossover. And I remember yeah. I was I was taking her uh, writing for comics course at the, uh, the uh, what's it called, the Kubert School. And, you know, she was, like, talking about, like, yeah, I'm working on this. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait. But it's like, when you hear some of these things, like, the the things to adapt with Rick and Morty and have them parody or have them cross over with make perfect sense when you end up realizing what they are. Oh, sure. And and it's really about finding an angle. It's about finding, you know, what is the particular lens that we can see it with the characters. You know, when Pat and I were coming up with the original Rick and Morty D&D crossover, it wasn't just like, let's do this cold, heartless, you know, commerce. 
it was, is Wizards of the Coast going to let us get away with taking deep stabs at, at you know, the biggest property in fantasy gaming? Because if not, it's not going to be worth doing, right? Like, you have to be willing to dig the elbow in deep and, and say truisms and, and ugliisms about the thing that you're parodying. Otherwise, it's just toothless, you know? And so as much as there are, hey, here's why D&D is great, there's also a lot of those kind of brutal stereotypes and stupid kind of things over the years that, that the game has done that we wanted to definitely dig our elbow in on. You know, no one can hurt you quite like your best friend. And so just because I love D&D doesn't mean that I don't know it's flawed. That's why I I'm... can really go for the throat. That's the whole point, right? And I think the Cthulhu mythos conceptually, you know, is such a powerful tool of horror and created, you know, an entire genre of, of kind of horror and storytelling. And it fascinated me when I was a kid and it fascinates me now. And that's why I want to go at it with the daggers. Like, that's why I want to really, you know, stab in deep and, and pull out the bits and let's talk about it, you know? That's why, in a side, I'm curious to see if they're going to go, you know, if uh, Wizards of the Coast will be self-deprecating in the upcoming Dungeons & Dragons movie that's coming out, I think, next year. You know, they... I think so. I think they, you know, the, one of the things that was really nice was when we were dealing with the licensor at, you know, Wizards, and the notes we were getting back, I thought we were going to have to, you know, curb some of our, our criticism, and they loved all of it. They were, like, really happy that we were going for it, and I asked them at one point why they were okay with, particularly some of the pointed jokes, and they basically said, look, we're the, you know, they really are the 800-pound gorilla of that whole, they created an entire category of gaming. They're bigger than they've ever been. If you can't laugh at yourself when you're on top, like, what good are you? You know what I mean? Like, you have to be able to be humorous about it. You have to be able to poke fun at yourself. Now, correct me if I'm mistaken, and it could very easily be that way, but the whole Cthulhu thing and bringing that character or whatever in, doesn't that go back to, like, the mid-60s and a couple of earlier uh, comics that either where creatures roam or something to that effect, and where you even got Groot, who spoke, back to that? I mean, the, the whole monster, I don't know that the monster genre is specifically Cthulhu, but, you know, the monster comics kind of thing, you know, there's waves of comic books, obviously romance comics and Western comics and whatever, the kind of monster stuff, the classic Kirby monsters of the Marvel era. Uh, I love that they're part of the Marvel Universe, by the way. There's a reason why uh, on the current Thunderbolts team, we added that new creature called Egro, uh, because Egro really was like kind of our throwback to those Kirby kind of creatures. Mm. And, and I love their alien qualities and their extreme personalities. I think they're a lot of fun. I think you can, you can, having those kinds of characters in the mix is one of the things that makes the Marvel Universe such a bizarre place in all the right kind of ways. Well, even touching back to the Thunderbolts, I realized that that was a time period where I had not been collecting, but I did see how when I first saw Thunderbolts, I said, wow, this ran over 100 issues or so. And I said, I got I have to collect this and eventually read it and you know get up to speed in that sense. And now here it is coming not full circle but at least in name like we said or you said in particular that they're different characters but there's a redemption theme going on here and so on yeah and the thunderbolts has been a lot of different things i know um you know the original twist of kurt Busick and mark bagley's thunderbolts is brilliant it's still great the the villains disguised as heroes 
you can't really ever redo that trick. Like it, it was one for the ages. It worked so well. It grabbed readers and retailers and surprised them and created a trajectory for that series that really dealt it well. But the best thing you can do over the years, it's gone through multiple kind of identity changes and big paradigm kind of shifts. Certain characters stuck around, but a lot of them have the cast has maneuvered multiple times. But it feels like, for me anyway, thematically, it's always been about redemption and, and failure. That you know, the series has been about: Are we going to be good, or are we going to go the easy way? You know what I mean? And the easy way being our worst impulses. You know, making mistakes, being villainous, or what may have you. And some of the characters fail over and over and over again. But just like any good Marvel hero, you know, with feet of clay, we want to see them struggle and we want to know, you know, see whether or not they will overcome these challenges. And so Hawkeye was the second leader of the Thunderbolts after Baron Zemo when the team kind of went rogue and kicked him out. Hawkeye was the next leader because he had been a criminal at the very start of his career. And so he felt like he could steer the team better. And so I feel like, Hawkeye being the team leader here is not as far afield. You know, Luke Cage was also team leader for a while. And so both Luke and Clint have a a vested interest in the name of the Thunderbolts and what they represent. Well, with you saying changing in the lineup, the roster, it made me think, has there been a thought that Thunderbolts could be in some little sense compared to the changing role of the Avengers um, or Suicide Squad, for that matter? Yeah, I know a lot of people compare Thunderbolts to Suicide Squad. I mean, there was one era, uh, you know, when, when Warren Ellis was writing it, where it had very much a Suicide Squad slant, but that hasn't been the norm. Like, yes, it's a team of villains or morally corrupt sort of people, but the very specific, you are prisoners trying to reduce your sentence, that is the Suicide Squad kind of model, and that's what you know Warren incorporated into his Dark Avengers sort of version. Um, but but if you look at the the number of issues where that was the case, it it's dwarfed by all the other permutations of the Thunderbolts. So I feel like I know it's an easy one for fandom to sort of point and go, oh, Thunderbolts is just Marvel's Suicide Squad. But I don't think that's the case. Like I feel like that's too easy a comparison and it, it's not a one-to-one in a clean kind of way. No. It's, it's, yeah, there's a lot more going on there in terms of what the Thunderbolts have been over the years. And the Suicide Squad is a great book and it's a really cool concept, but I feel like, you know, Ostrander and those guys, they, they built it to be a very specific thing in terms of prisoners being forced on these suicide missions, you know, and it's cool, and it's a lot of fun, but that's not just, okay, and then we did it over at Marvel, you know? Yeah, and let's be real. You know, when you hear the fan, you know, reaction saying, oh, it's just going to be this, well, then that gives the uh, the creators and the people involved the ability to be like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And then you do the right. complete 180. So it's... I think that's why you need to constantly sort of reinvent. That's why you need to sort of push and pull. If you literally just take the tack that everyone expects of you and you just do the exact sort of story that they expect, you know, you do want to give the fans some of what they want, of course. But, but what you'll notice is the stories that stick with people are the ones that shake things up. They're the ones that sort of try uh, other things. You know, what is an iconic X-Men story. Well, you know, the Dark Phoenix Saga or the Mutant Massacre or things like this, right? What is an iconic Captain America story? Well, the Winter Soldier, you know, like these kinds of stories that 
shake these characters to their core and change them up or surprise readers, uh, that's, you know, the only constant is change. And that's not to say that every change is a good one, but I feel like you need to take your swings and, and try things out. And then hopefully you find something special while you're, while you're on that journey. I always feel like, you know, you don't have to listen to the fans all the time because if you listen to the fans all the time, every single fan casting is going to be Nathan Fillion or Idris Elba over and over and over. So it's you know, like... I, the, and the movie stuff and the TV stuff such a different beast because you have such... They're different mediums, right? Yeah. Like, you know, our ability to do 12 chapters a year of an ongoing monthly book plus other appearances of those characters we can cover so much more ground than one movie every three to four years or a TV show and a movie. Do you know what I mean? And so you have to pick your battles in very different ways, let alone the fact that you have the limitations of physical actors that are taking on these roles and they're going to age out of them or they're going to change their priorities in ways that the comic series don't have to, they're not limited in that respect. In the very same way we were talking about Spider-Man and counting Christmases, you know what I mean? Like, Spider-Man and Peter Parker are an ongoing constant in ways that Tom Holland will age. You know, he will change, and uh, the character will have to change with him. Like we said before about Thunderbolts Avengers, is there, for those that don't know, including myself especially, that a certain number of characters are in the Thunderbolts? Like, I think Avengers always had to have seven, I think it was. Right. No, we don't have a set number in that way. And we actually, in the first issue, uh, we, I think we've got six characters and we had a seventh one in the, in the second issue. So it's like, you know, it's not sort of locked down in that, in that kind of roster sort of way. And, and, you know, switching it up is kind of the whole point in, of the whole thing. Now, I have to ask real quick, with uh, Thunderbolts, the person who did the uh, cover, was uh, the co- person who did the cover of uh, Thunderbolts number one DNA? Yeah, that's uh, David Nakayama. I feel like any time a title comes out and Nakayama does a cover, like it's either Nakayama or Alex Ross. Like Once you get one of those two artists on your title, you know the company has full faith in what you're doing because like that's just primo stuff right there. Yeah, it's a great-looking cover. It's really iconic. It jumps off the stands. Uh, all the characters get a nice showing on that cover. I, he did a wonderful job, you know, and Sean did the covers for the subsequent issues. Our interior artist, which I know feels like a rarity nowadays, but the interior artist is doing the cover as well. Um and Sean's designs are great too. You know that Hawkeye costume where he's taking notes of the classic and trying to, you know, merge it with the modern kind of feel that people expect from, uh, you know, an MCU kind of Hawkeye costume. I feel like he found a really nice middle ground. Same thing with Monica Rambeau and and you know all the characters. He did just a wonderful job, um, kind of updating and and streamlining those costumes. Are there any characters out there that you'd love to see get a, you know, revert back to a classic costume other than Hawkeye? Hmm. That's a good question. There's certain characters, you know, I think it's, we all have these deep biases for when we started reading a character. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times when people talk about the X-Men, they're talking about the specific X-Men lineup when they became a fan. You know what I mean? And so those costumes tend to become really ingrained in in what you think the characters should look like because that is 
the one that's sort of imprinted on your youth or imprinted on your fandom, for lack of a better term. And so I try, you try to be, you want to embrace those biases, but also not constantly be dragging characters back to an earlier paradigm. Like, I think the Spider-Man black costume is so friggin' cool because that's when I was becoming a crazy Spider-Man fan, you know, was in that the middle eighties period when that showed up. Um, so, you know, if I could find a way to put that character, you know, Spider-Man in that costume over extended periods, find some flimsy narrative justification to make it happen. Yeah, cool. Let's do that. You know, because some part of me would just be gleeful about it. No. Not that I don't like the red and, you know, the, the, the red and black one, but it's like, yeah, it's the, 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 the black and white costume so friggin' awesome no, the... uh, and just felt so iconic. Now, on the flip side of, you know, comic characters that the costumes always change, are there any that, you know, you've been fine with every single character revision? Like, myself, I love Dazzler. Like, every Dazzler right. iteration slaps. It's funny, right? Because some characters, the whole point of them is supposed to be a constant change, right? That that's sort of part and parcel. I like that America Chavez always has these outfits that incorporates the American flag imagery, but it's always a little bit different. And it's like it's like a fashion show rather than a, an outfit it's not a costume in the sense a uniform it's like she's got all these clothes and she's sort of pulling them together in random configurations that all happen to look badass in their own way i think there's something really fun and playful with that i think it it gives the artist a lot of license to interpret and uh and yeah just be playful just be joyous with the possibilities of of what that iconography means you know same thing with something like supergirl it feels like she can go through, you know, all these iterations, and and very few of them are bad. Most of them have got some kind of cool spark to them. The only thing we'd be missing with America Chavez would be a traveling uh, runway, so we could have a real fashion right. show, and then have Dazzler and Jubilee, right? And get a little mini concert to give a show. I mean, I guess that's what the Hellfire Gala is. Everyone gets to show off all these crazy outfits and stuff. I was gonna say, give Josie and the Pussycats a run for their money, right? So now before we wrap this episode up, Jim, thank you so much for the time with us today. Well, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. It's wonderful to talk about stuff. I know we've been sort of jumping around from subject to subject here. It's what we that's do. That's kind of the joy of these things. They all kind of feed off of each other. So now before we go, how can people get a hold of you on them and our social medias? It's nice and simple. Everything's at jimsub.com. So if you go there, not only do you get you know previews of work I've got coming out and links to buy my stuff from digital storefronts, and tutorials about how to work in the comic book industry, what it's like to pitch stories and work with an artist and all that good stuff. But you've also got links to my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook, all those different outlets, YouTube page and Patreon and all that kind of stuff. So you just go to that one simple hub site and it will direct you anywhere you want to go. And myself as an aspiring creator, yes, the Patreon is worth every penny. Actually, as a matter of oh, fact, thanks. I'm planning on re-upping very soon because... For the price of a cup of coffee and to get all that content, yeah, that's a very yeah, good deal. Yeah, like 270 scripts that I have in there. There's outlines. There's lettering proofs. There's uh, Q&A. So, so aspiring creators will just ask me questions that haven't been answered in other articles, and then I'll do deep dives on stuff. There's links to videos and interviews with other creators. There's all sorts of good stuff on there. Um, you know, just sort of trying to demystify a lot of what it is to work in the business. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a submarine? Have I been in a submarine? Yes. I have not. Thank you for your time. <laughs> <laughs>
It's like set them up and then puts them right back there. It's, it's been a long time since that question got posed to anybody, I think. Now he's it's back. It's been a while. Yeah. Yes, stained. Good song. <laughs> Jim, a pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. Um, if you want to check out what I've currently got going on, obviously, Thunderbolts at Marvel, Unbreakable Red Sonya, uh, Murder World Avengers comes out later this month here in November, uh, which is kicking off a really cool storyline that Ray Fox and I are doing with, uh, you know, everyone's favorite strange uh, uh, game show host of death at Marvel. Um, and uh, Rick and Morty versus Cthulhu comes out launching in December. All right, we're going to pull the truck back just a little bit because I did not realize you have an, a, a Murder World book coming, but... <laughs> <laughs> Slam the brakes on. Yeah. We're not thinking about what? Murder World, what? I'm a big fan of Arcade, so to be able to see Arcade interact with more characters, yeah, I'm on board for that. I love Disco Joker, so yes, please, more, Sweet, more. Man. Uh, yeah, I can't wait for people to read the first issue. We, we're putting the murder back in Murder World. That's all I can say. <laughs> I don't want to reveal anything else. Give it a read that first issue and I think you'll have a pretty solid idea of where we're headed with this twisted little story I didn't know it left murder I thought it was always part of it well it's always in the name but because he's constantly trying to you know off these heroes there's this underlying feeling that there's no tension there because you're not going to really kill off Captain America or Thor or any of those characters right like so how can it be that murderous if we know the heroes are going to make it out alive and so uh, Ray Fox and I have posited an interesting sort of angle on these kinds of things and and we're eager for readers to check it out my first um arcade encounter murder world was in pinball x-men oh nice. and i don't know if that was the, the origin and nope. maybe you have this but he, he goes he goes back further i guess first appearance. i mean the character's first appearances in marvel team up it's spider-man and captain britain yes i, uh, I remember which is I a have really that. cool yeah. one and then he became from there he became an x-men villain Okay, got it. And he's such a great character. That's why, like, yeah. I love. I lo- you never see him, by the way, when you go to a convention. It's very rare to see a uh, what's his name, a cosplayer, a, a arca- arcade cosplayer. You yeah, never I see would, it. I, I hope this uh, miniseries puts him back in the spotlight and convinces people to uh, to dress up and to really dig into their their love of the character because he's got a really fun, iconic look. And oh yeah, uh, yeah. He should be out there more. And if you're a fan, I think maybe I'm going to say twice, but it's probably only been once for sure. I don't remember where. Maybe it was probably New York Comic Con that I did see this character, and I just went, "What?" Yeah, you know, and I knew who it was, right? right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love when people do deep cut characters. I love when you've got strange and and you know that they don't just go for the for the ones you've seen a hundred times before, but they go deep into the catalog. That's the stuff. It's oh. good times. I want to give a shout out to Bran Onstott, friend of mine who does an arcade cosplay, and he's even got the gigantic bow tie. Well, yeah. Oh, damn. So, the toughest part about awesome. this character, I think, is going to be keeping the white clean. Yeah. Right. You know, and and for me, forget it. I instantly get it's like a dirt magnet for me. Anything light colored. <laughs> so. Well, when you get a chance to read uh, Murder World Avengers, which is the first part of this story, uh, let me know what you think. I think it's going to turn some heads. mm Hmm. Just not all the way around because not that's like a... that's very bad with arcade. Arcade would do that. <laughs> Twist it right off. Yikes. Pop it. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jim Zub. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. <laughs>